Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another Privacy International podcast from our Reproductive Rights and Privacy Project. I am Sarah Nelson, and I lead the Reproductive Rights Project here at PI. Today, we're speaking with Denise Albornoz, who is the Director of Investigation at the Peruvian organization Ibotaracho. And my colleague Laura spoke with Denise about the research that Ibo Derecho did with PI on data exploitation in sexual and reproductive rights. Hi, Denise. Could you describe the landscape of reproductive rights in Peru, specifically in relation to access to contraception, abortion care, and medically accurate sexual health information? Yes. Um, so the landscape of reproductive still uh, bleak even though we've had some advances in legislation the implementation is still poor and at the social and cultural level uh, abortion and reproductive rights are still not being discussed and there is still a strong opposition um, in regards to access to contraception specifically the Peruvian constitution and our current laws do indicate that everyone has the right to freely choose the method of their choice and they also require the state to uh, distribute different contraceptive methods free of charge. However, in spite of this, contraceptive methods are still not fully accessible due to factors such as lack of integral sexual education or lack of resources to go to the centers where the um, contraceptives are being distributed, as well as other social and cultural barriers to accepting contraceptives. So um, there is still strong campaigns, and we can talk more about that later, but that are framing contraceptives as being aborted. So it's both an implementation struggle as well as a social and cultural battle. In regards to abortion, most forms of abortion are still a crime, are still considered, um, are still penalized by the Peruvian constitution. But since 1924, therapeutic abortion uh, became legal only in two scenarios when it is the means to save the pregnant woman's life or also to avoid any serious, serious or permanent damage in her health. However, the protocol to perform therapeutic abortion only became available in 2014, so 90 years later after the law was passed. And even within that protocol, you do not find guidelines that give women the right to choose when they want to get an abortion or mechanisms to have a safe, a safe abortion if they desire to, to have one. So considering therapeutic abortion, uh, all in all, the right to decide is still a crime and women are resorting to methods such as purchasing abortion pills on their own with the support of activists and civil society organizations that give them guidance, or going to clandestine abortion clinics that are often unsafe and that are not being regulated and where women are still facing a lot of complications. So, so that is still one of the biggest issues surrounding access to reproductive rights and access to, to a safe abortion. And in regards to health information, you can find some information on reproductive health on state platforms, mainly the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Women. But these are mostly technical standards, reports that are related more to STIs, to HIV, to pregnancy, but do not really explicitly address uh, abortion or reproductive rights per se. And there also seem to be address to a more technical audience. So if I'm a woman that wants to learn more about her options, if I go to this website, I will probably not find the information 
that I'm looking for. And in Peru, civil society organizations and activists are the groups that are trying to fill that gap. They're the ones trying to produce that information that you currently cannot find on state platforms. Could you talk about what you found in your research about the different forms of tech that you're seeing being integrated within reproductive healthcare and the organizations behind this tech? Yes. So we found that the technologies that are being used are still pretty standard, traditional. Um, there is a strong use of the internet, of using websites and social networks to disseminate information. Uh, we did find among um, civil society groups mostly the use of encrypted messaging apps to protect the privacy of women who are seeking information. So we're seeing that there is a growing awareness of the value of personal data and how that data could be used against women that are looking for information um, online. Um, but we only found this, uh, this was only brought up when we spoke to civil society organizations that are constantly thinking about how to protect women. There is also a growing trend of online chats on the, the website we explored um, that we believe are being implemented to answer uh, urgent and pressing questions of looking for information. But what was interesting is that we found online chats both on websites that are for reproductive rights as well as against reproductive rights. So there is a sense that behind these technologies trying to get to women as fast as possible um, and they want to basically make sure that they capture their attention the first to get them the information with their own perspective um, so that i think that was one of the most interesting parts of of our research because we also found that and we can talk more about that later but that the online chats that are being run by groups that are for abortion tend to have really good privacy policies and they do bring up the importance of protecting personal data, whereas the ones that are against uh, reproductive rights do not seem to have privacy policies and do not bring this up at all, which might be a coincidence, but it might also mean that um, it's on purpose, that they're just leaving that gap to make sure that that personal data that is probably being collected can be used later on in different ways. You were mentioning in passing the role of opposition organizations in campaigning. Could you talk about how the opposition uses social media to coordinate and spread non-medical information? Yes, we unfortunately did not find any evidence that they're using ads on social media, but we did have a lot of testimonies of activists, civil society organizations that assume that opposition groups are, being, are very well organized and have a lot of resources to organize on social media. The main groups that were mentioned in interviews were uh, the groups that organized the Marcha por la Vida or the pro-life march. They have a Twitter account, very strong presence um, that is widely disseminated, not only in Peru, but also in, in the region. They also brought up um, the presence of Comisijos No Te Metas, or Don't Mess With My Children, that now not only have a presence in Latin America, I think they have a presence around the world. And even though this group mostly talks about uh, gender policies in, in education, they also address uh, reproductive rights and abortion uh, in their social media accounts. And they also rely on the social media accounts of Catholic or conservative news agencies that will further disseminate their messages. So 
it's pretty standard. It just means that opposition groups are trying to use social media strategically and effectively to reach as many people as possible, to spread their messages as much as possible, and also to suppress in some ways um, the messages that are being disseminated by activists or social or civil society groups in the same platform. So, so that is what came up in regards to social media. But we also found something interesting that doesn't really qualify within social media, but um, is related to how opposition groups are using um, the cloning of social media sites or of websites that are run by um, activists that promote reproductive rights. So this is something that came up in the research and it seems to be a tactic that is not only being used in Peru, but also across the region. What opposition groups are doing is um, basically cloning the websites or the social media sites of these groups with the exact same information except for the contact information. So whenever a woman who's looking for information on reproductive rights wants to contact one of these civil society organizations or one of these activist organizations, they will go to their social media site, go to their website, believe it's them because everything looks exactly the same, same graphic design, same content, but when they go to the contact information, they will be contacting someone else who is not part of the organization. And what we found out through testimonies is that when you reach to these uh, phone numbers or these emails, they will redirect you to a clinic or they, they will redirect you to a face-to-face -face meeting where they will either give you information to disencourage you from uh, having an abortion that has religious under, undertones, or in other cases, it could also be the meeting point uh, of a clandestine abortion clinic that, as I mentioned earlier, tend to be very unsafe and unregulated. So both the tactic works both ways, either to get more misinformation about reports or to capture women and uh, basically put them at risk by giving them the option of a very unsafe procedure. You talked about how according to your research, pro-abortion websites tend to have a privacy policy that is quite robust. Could you talk more about the chat services you encountered on pregnancy websites generally and how that fit with the privacy policy available? Yes, so um, what we found, as I mentioned earlier, is that the online chats that are being run from pro-reproductive rights websites, they seem to have uh, at least very visible privacy policies and they encourage you to review these privacy policies before you, you provide your personal data. Um, they also, on the policies, they tend to describe how they will be using, how they will be collecting your data, either through cookies or through the information that you will be providing through the, the forms that you're filling out in order to get information. And this is in line with what is um, obligated on behalf of the data protection law that we currently have in the country. Um, on the other hand, however, uh, groups that are against reproductive rights and that are, that are also running online chats on their websites, they mention privacy policies. They say you can review our privacy policy before using our online chat, but it's impossible to find or is non-existent. So we are finding that if this is indeed true, that the online, um, the anti-reproductive rights websites are collecting data and are processing personal data, this is already completely against, um, they're failing to comply with the obligations of the data protection law, and they're also committing different violations against the law 
that could be fined by the data protection authority. So that definitely warrants further research, but um, just through an OU, we tend to believe that the hiding of the privacy policy or the non-existence of the privacy policy may be on purpose, just based on how activist groups believe personal data of women is being used in other parts of the region. Could you talk about the different forms of non-medical information campaigns that you found? Yes, so we found that um, there are two main with misinformation campaigns that I've already mentioned in, in the earlier questions, but the first um, objective would be to disseminate as much information against contraceptive methods and abortion as possible. So this includes circulating misinformation about both topics or discrediting information that um, is being circulated either by the government or by activist groups that are promoting the use of, of these methods. And the second objective, as I also mentioned, would be to reach women who are seeking information about reproductive rights and capturing them um, to bring them to your side or to bring them to your service. So in terms of misinformation on contraceptive methods, we found that these are being mostly circulated by religious or politically affiliated groups. They are, in terms of content, mostly trying to uh, promote what they call natural contraceptive methods, such as the fertility awareness method or abstinence, and they frame them as being better or effective than what they are calling artificial or hormonal methods. Just to also be clear and on record, none of the methods that they are uh, promoting are listed by the World Health Organization as contraceptive methods, but they're listed as family planning methods. So in that regards, they're not really uh, providing evidence for any of the claims that they're making to discredit contraception methods. They're also, another strategy they're doing is labeling contraceptive methods as being abortive. Um, such as the morning after pill or the use of intrauterine devices, also with no evidence. And they're only backing this claim up by bringing up the theory that fertilization, which is currently not recognized officially in Peru. And as I mentioned earlier, the issue with these campaigns being run, even though they're not being backed up by evidence is that they are being widely circulated by social media. So some of the groups that I mentioned earlier are picking up these campaigns and giving them further visibility, or as I mentioned, news agencies that have a strong conservative or religious affiliation are also circulating these campaigns without doing the any sort of fact. And in regards to misinformation on abortion, we found that these are also being circulated by religious and conservative groups, but they're also um, being circulated by clandestine abortion clinics. So these clinics also came up as an important player in the information landscape about reproductive rights. Um, I already mentioned that what they're doing in regards to cloning websites, but another strategy they're using is pretty um, straightforward, but they're just having an online presence, which is not something they used to do before, as because they're clandestine and they're not really running with um, safe procedures. You would expect that they would try to be not, not as visible or the least visible possible, but what they're doing now is that they're creating websites, they have social media accounts where they're also promoting the services of their clinics. And for me, even though they're not 
pretending to be a different organization, they're being themselves. You can go on the way and you can read that it is an abortion clinic straight up. I think that this is one of the most dangerous examples of misinformation and how it can be really dangerous to women and in some cases even lethal. Right now, there are no official figures in Peru of how many women are using these services, but it is estimated that more than 28,000 women are being hospitalized after using one of these services, and that there are at least uh, 58 deaths per year because of unsafe procedures during abortion. So, and as I mentioned at the beginning, given that abortion is illegal, those who work in these clinics are completely safe. They can commit any sort of scam or abuse or negligence and they will be fine because women cannot report them. The second that they report them, they are um, admitting that they have also consented to an abortion, which would also put them at risk. So. It is a catch-22, and it is for us, it was a big surprise to know that now these services are also being openly promoted online. Could you talk about foreign organizations that have an anti-reproductive presence in Peru? Yes, we found uh, among the, I guess, that one of the biggest organizations was the Human Life International Organization. Um, this organization is from the U.S., but they have, they are funding uh, one of the biggest centers that promotes, that is against reproductive rights or the promotion of reproductive rights, that is the Center for Family Promotion and Birth Regulation or CEPROFARENA in Spanish. This organization is in Peru since the 80s. And what is interesting about them is that among their members, you can find doctors and health professionals who have worked or currently work for the government. So. Just to give you a few examples, uh, one of the founders of the center of Seprofarena was uh, Luis Justila Rosa, who is a doctor and a politician, and is also the founder of one of the most influential political parties in the country, that is the Christians People Party, or PPC, PPC in Spanish. Um, another example was um, Fernando Carbone, also a member of the center and was the Ministry of Health between 2002 and 2003. And during his term, he actively attempted to block the distribution of contraceptive pills and other contraception methods, and also trying to change the general health law to reduce reproductive rights or access to reproductive rights. Unfortunately, he was not successful, but it is very indicative of how these organizations can also have a lot of political power and have influence over how policy is designed and being implemented. Another organization that we found was the Latin American Alliance for the Family. That's um, ALAFA in Spanish, and it's a Venezuelan organization that is dedicated to the edition and printing of educational school texts, where they are discouraging contraceptive methods and promoting abstinence as the only safe contraceptive method. So even though this does not sound like a technology problem, uh, we think it is because um, sexual education is one of the weaknesses of our education policies. If you look at, at the statistics, only 5% of teachers are addressing sexual education in the classroom. And it is believed that 85% of school children um, are learning about sexuality online. So if these children reach the misinformation campaigns that I mentioned earlier, and they have a school textbook that basically provides or evidence or backs up the claims that they're seeing in misinformation campaigns, it just creates a cycle where it will be harder to debunk these misinformation theories that are being circulated. 
So for us, it's an example of how these organizations are working both online, but also offline towards the same objective or within the same strategy of promoting the same misinformation campaign. And finally, we found the presence of Opus Dei, that is a Catholic organization founded in Spain, very well known. They have a chapter in Peru since the 50s. And in a similar way to Seprofarena, they have also acquired a lot of relevance uh, within the politics of the country. So there are a lot of politics and entrepreneurs that are affiliated to Opus Dei. Uh, to give you examples, Marta Chavez, she's a congresswoman, or a former health minister, Luis Solari, they were both part of the and they lead anti-abortion and reproductive rights agenda whenever they are in power. So again, for us, the presence of foreign organizations just puts in evidence how they're providing resources and space for people with a lot of political and economic power to um, continue with their anti-reproductive rights agenda both at the policy level but also backing up the efforts that are happening online by more grassroots organizations that align with their same view so for us it's kind of a teamwork situation is there anything else that you covered in your report that we haven't discussed that you would like to chat about i think that one of the things that came that stood out to us was how activist groups and civil society groups are very instrumental in the in the battle towards promoting reproductive rights and making sure that the right information is visible and by right information i mean fact checked that is uh, that is uh, backed up by evidence that does not put in danger uh, the life of women uh, who are seeking for this information for us the internet and the information landscape that we're seeing in peru is right now not dominated by either view. You have a lot of information circulated by civil society organizations that are organizing really well to basically further um, evidence-backed information. And then you have these counter campaigns and it's, it's a battle that is happening online. So for us speaking with civil society organizations and learning about their struggles and how they're trying to protect women was not only really inspiring, but it made us realize how important it is to also support their information-based efforts because they're already having issues running in terms of human resources, that amount of capital they have to provide accompaniment to women, but their information-based efforts may be as important in order to make sure that this fight um, or this battle that is happening online and on social media can really be won. And one of the things that in that these organizations are already doing and that in Iperderecho we were very interested in supporting are improving their digital security uh, measures, making sure that these organizations understand how data circulates online whenever women are seeking for support or seeking for information, how data can be protected not only by the law, but with good digital security practices. Uh, we are learning that uh, these groups are already, are already pretty well informed about the importance of digital security, but we want to make sure that we're also supporting, uh, facilitating cap capacity building in that regard, not only to protect the safety of the women that are providing support, but also to provide the safety of women that are seeking support. Um, and overall, we found that in Peru, Thankfully, there are not a lot of very sophisticated strategies happening online. So right now, we think it's the best moment to intervene, to make sure that 
women who are seeking support know how to protect their data, that organizations providing support know how to also protect the data that they are receiving, and that they also know how to identify when other groups may be exploiting the personal data of women who are seeking support. So it's more of an, the moment to uh, have strong education and capacity building measures, and hopefully we'll be ready for whatever is to come in the future. Thank you very much.